Hello, and welcome to the Review Squared. Guess what? We're back on Blaze Radio and BlazeRadioOnline.com for the first time in a few, like a month. It's been about a month, I think. So welcome back to those of you who love listening to us on Friday nights at our new time, 7 p.m. And of course, this week we've got a jam-packed show full of all kinds of different stories to inform you and talk about the news of this week. Anyhow, I'm getting karaoke. I'm Ethan Pelland. I'm Kirsten Dorman. I'm Alejandro de la Sandra. I'm Haley Smiley. And have we got a show for you this week. So let's take a moment. And of course, I'll be talking here first um, today and talk about the beautiful state of Arizona once again. A lot is happening down here at the moment with more than 9,000 coronavirus cases reported on Friday the 15th of January and the total deaths from them crossing 11,000 since the start of the pandemic, according to the Arizona Republic. This story is not about the pandemic itself though, it's about education funding. This has been a contentious topic in state politics for a while and because the state legislative session kicked off on Monday the 11th, it is once again a topic of discussion. Governor Doug Ducey has released a budget proposal this week and it includes education proposals, of course. There is no plan for teacher raises for the first time in a few years with the 20% by 2020 plan from a few years ago being over and the victory of Proposition 208, which raised uh, income tax rates on high owners in part to pay for teacher raises. The big proposal included in uh, Ducey's budget proposal for education is a $389 million grant program to help schools make up progress lost in the pandemic. However, this did come from cuts made because of an estimated enrollment decline of 50,000 students in the public school system and virtual learning increases, which a virtual learning, a fun fact for those of you who might not know, is reimbursed 5% lower than in-person classrooms despite costing more for school districts with all the related technology costs and whatnot. Other proposals included in this budget, uh, education funding proposal include promoting school choice through some new programs and setting up an initiative for early childhood literacy. The response to it on the uh, on the critical side um, has uh, state school superintendent Kathy Hoffman saying that the uh, proposal does not include sustained investment in education or funding for all day kindergarten despite the $2 billion projected surplus for this year and the $1 billion rainy day fund. So given all of this, what do you all think on the panel? Um, on education here in Arizona, and especially the funding of it. I could be wrong, but it sounds like they're just kind of throwing money at the problem and saying, here, take this money, fix it, deal with it. And I think we've learned over time, or should have learned by now, that just throwing money at a problem, well, it's great, like funding is great, it doesn't actually cause a solution. If you see what the people around him could set up a series of action and plans that might be more effective than just throwing money at the school system and being like, yes, that's what fix all of our problems because it doesn't, it hasn't fixed many of the problems that Arizona school systems seem to be having. 
Also, I think it would be really actually pretty helpful um, if he actually, you know, like talked to Captain Hoffman, who is the superintendent of public instruction, because according to an article written in Arizona Capital Times today, they have not been talking and Ducey has not really consulted her on any education matters, which is pretty stark turn compared to in the in the beginning days of the pandemic last year when they were in when they showed up in videos together and they were talking about um, shutting down schools for certain amounts of time. So yeah, it's like if you're not going to consult people who are professionals in, in education, then who are you talking to about education? Like, I mean, obviously you're the governor, so you make the decisions, but like talk to people who actually know education, like in and out to where it's literally their job to know everything about Arizona schools and Arizona education. Yeah, no, Alejandro, I agree. It is very disappointing that he's not even consulting uh, Hoffman, who is the state school superintendent, and not on not just on these different issues, but also, as you've been saying, like just all around, they're just not. There's no communication between the the ninth floor and the Department of Education, really, and that is not good. Uh, so, yeah, uh, really interesting here. Um, the thing that interests me personally, at least on the on the good side of the ledger, is a push for early literacy. Uh, Arizona does does in fact have a problem with that. So I am glad to see that uh, the state government is taking early childhood literacy seriously and trying to f at least fund initiatives to increase it. Uh, and yeah, but it's. And yeah, it, it's very weird that we have a $2 billion surplus in there. That's a lot of money. That's, that's, a, that's, that's no joke. We could actually take a real dent in the long list of things the state government has to do or should do because it's immoral to keep things the way they are. And that's not happening. Clearly, Ducey is not very happy with schools not being in person right now. Um, or it's like some schools not being in person fully. So if he really wants instruct public instruction to be happening in the classroom, like physically, maybe he should give more money so that way teachers and everyone can have the PPE and all the equipment needed to do public instruction as safely as they can. Because obviously it's not going to be completely safe until we're out of the pandemic, but you know, like make sure you supply the money so that schools can go back to public instruction safely or as safely as they can. Because otherwise they're just gonna wanna keep doing it at home where obviously they feel safer and where it is safer. Yeah. Maybe uh, some of that money could be placed towards either assisting in the um, making either the community colleges or ASU or the um, higher education system in Arizona ensuring that it it's continues to fall within the constraints of the Arizona state constitution, which asks that um, the state government ensure that uh, higher education in Arizona is as affordable as possible. 
Yeah, the exact wording there is as nearly free as possible. And I'm not making this up. As nearly free as possible are the exact words in the state constitution. And I vividly remember this. Um, I regret to inform you, I would not call um, my dear university as nearly free as possible. So, yeah, now once again, there's just a, like $2 billion. That could be a real down payment toward the future. On the other hand, I should know, I didn't mention this in the story because um, it's really only tangentially related. Ducey is proposing tax cuts again um, to fulfill his promise to cut taxes every year he was in office and he's not given up. So yeah, real fun stuff. Um, but yes, uh, if no one else has anything, any, any other thoughts or, well, in that case, uh, I will hand it off to Ethan. All right. So my story for tonight, um, and I do have one on my class week, um, since we have such a cataclysmic uh, domestic event as what took place on January 6th, um, is nuclear arms control. And I, th I feel like this is very important because what we're likely going to see as Biden's first large foreign policy task is what he's going to do with nuclear arms control. So on February 5th, which is 15, 20 days from now, um, or 21, I don't remember. <laughs> um, so, it's in, so in three weeks from now, from the day to day, the new START Treaty, which is sort of the last remaining um, nuclear arms control agreement between the United States and Russia, is set to expire. Now, what is less in contention is whether or not that is going to be extended. Um, what is in contention is how that's going to look, what that process is going to go, look like. So I'd like tonight to sort of talk um, through, because this is a topic that's mentioned every so often, but isn't given like a really good explanation to the public um, in terms of what really nuclear arms control contains and why it's a bit concerning right now of where we're at in terms of um, the state of that internationally. So the reason why we're in a sort of precarious position is because a lot of the legacy agreements between the United States and Russia that were sparked, spawned in the Cold War have over the last 20 years slowly um, died out. Most notably in 2002, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which was signed between the United States and Russia in 1972, was invalidated by the Bush administration because they felt that the limitations were, were too much um, to, in a sense of their capabilities to combat terrorism. And in 2019, the INF Treaty was invalidated by the Trump administration and the INF treaty. And by the way, if 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 anyone who anyone who listens um, wants to learn more about the topics that I like to discuss on the show, I would very much so recommend the Council on Foreign Relations. So I'm going to use their um, they have a on almost all these issues when it comes to Afghanistan, when it comes to a topic like this with nuclear arms control, they always have these really really well designed timelines, which give you a really good summary of the issue over historical period. So the INF Treaty was another one of these Cold War era restrictions. And now this is, when people think about nuclear arms control, they mostly think about the warheads. But nuclear arms control also has to do with the varying degrees and the, the whole point, in a sense, of nuclear arms control is to actually Weirdly enough, ensure that both sides 
still have mutually assured destruction. And that's almost always been sort of what's, what, what is meant to be maintained is a sort of equal balance between the two large nuclear powers of Russia and the United States. So this means that nuclear arms control also has to do with limiting defense systems. Because in a sense, um, the idea has been is that if one country has an advantage when it comes to nuclear defense, they might feel that they, in a, in a limited exchange, that they could benefit. And so that's why almost always there's the level playing field when it comes to missile defense systems. As well, it's not just the nuclear warheads, it's also how you deliver them. So that's why these nuclear arms control agreements have also always attempted to limit the usage of delivery technology. Um, I, I remember all the way back in 2016, people made fun of Trump for not knowing what the nuclear triad was. So the nuclear triad is, another, is, is, how, is the three different ways, primary ways of delivery for nuclear weapons. So it's submarines, um, land-based land -based launchers, and ballistic missiles. Of course, as I said, the ABM was invalidated in 2002. And so Biden has a really big task now is just where he sort of goes from here, because if New START isn't continued, there won't be, there'll be no limitations on Russia or the United States' total amount of warheads that they can have or any of the technology in which they can invest. As well, so the last point that he should, he sh that he'll be thinking about and has been getting some attention is there's a, actually a pretty decent piece um, that was published in Fox News by John, by former Senator from Arizona, John Kyle, about why China needs to be um, included in any future nuclear arms control agreements, because China is a rising nuclear power. And they're attempting to, as well, they're planning to double their, their stockpile of nuclear warheads over the next 10 years, and also invest in their own nuclear triad in order to reach parity with the United States. So Biden also has to take in, into account uh, rise, China's rising status as a nuclear power, as well as maintaining oversight over Iran's nuclear program and North Korea's continued investment in their defense, in their nuclear defense program. So yeah, that was pretty much throughout these next his next four years of his presidency, Biden's going to be having to maintain sort of this very um, disciplined attention to the nuclear arms control. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, this is one thing you really don't want to screw up because as we know about nuclear weapons, uh, once they are launched, it ain't pretty. Uh, just keep in mind, it's not like in the movies where they are about to push the button or they push the button and they can take it back and everything's all good. You know, I think that's a misconception a lot of people might have. I don't know what you guys think about that in particular, but... Wait, Kirsten? Kirsten? Very permanent. It is something that is very permanent, but it, there were a couple of times, I think Ethan can back me up on this. There were a couple of times during the Cold War it almost happened. Absolutely. Yeah, in 19, I, I don't remember the exact, well, almost during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And there was an error in the 1980s, a, um, a monitoring station in Russia um, had an error saying that there were ballistic missiles being launched from the United States. Mm -hmm. And the station chief uh, refused to launch 
Right. And I think the effects of that in particular, um, politically and just in terms of international relations, that's not something that you can take back in those terms. You know, and I think that's something that a lot of people might have the misconception of thinking, you know, a little too much like Hollywood, if that makes any sense. I'm sorry. And uh, it, a big thing of Trump's um, presidency or, or over the course of his presidency was his attempts to sort of um, invest in nuclear defense. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. it took about 30 years, but we finally did complete a passable missile defense system. So generally, what these sort of um, it probably the nation that has the most technologically advanced uh, missile defense system is Israel with the Iron Dome. And te- usually, in a sense, these defense systems are meant to intercept. Um, so if a bills- if a missile's launched. Towards um, towards the United States or or a country, the defense system is meant to launch a counter missile in order to intercept and destroy whatever the whatever is being used as the delivery device. Now, the system here in the United States is complete, but it's still defense officials still consider it basically a prototype. So they're not really confident in a actual real situation that they will be able to fully defend. And even if one or two were to get through, even in a limited exchange, that would still mean enormous devastation. Quick question. Do we know the people, do we know yet the people who are going to be like advising him on like this matter and those similar? I'm not, they haven't necessarily like fully um, talked about who he is going to be directly advising him on nuclear issues, but I'm sure that Blinken uh, will be very involved in that, uh, considering his Generally, most of the U.S.'s sort of diplomacy with Russia over nuclear weapons is generally centered around Europe. Um, during the Obama presidency, they canceled plans to invest in in nuclear um, defense and offensive cap- systems in Poland, um, and those sorts of things could come up again um, in these in these negotiations. As it currently stands, Russia has six thousand five hundred nuclear warheads, and the United States has five thousand nine hundred. And that's largely that those numbers are actually low in comparison to the height of the Cold War. But without it, without the New START Treaty, there'd be no constraints. Does the uh, panel have uh, any other uh, questions or uh, thoughts? If uh, not, I'll hand it off to Kirsten, her story. Thank you very much. Um, that's an important conversation to have, I think. And I'm glad that the review is the kind of show where we can do that. Um, So my story for you guys this week is going to be about a Netflix documentary that was released just recently, and I'd like to just dive in really quickly. So if you're part of the true crime community, then you know. Everyone has a case that shakes them like nothing else. Everyone has a limit to what they can handle hearing and seeing. It's important not to forget the first part of true crime, which is the truth in it. When we talk about cases, we are talking about real people's stories, real people who are missing, real people who have died, and real people who are looking for and grieving for those people. Sometimes we're reminded of those two things and of our limits 
just how harsh the truth behind these cases we discuss is unexpectedly. And sometimes we're reminded of those things via Netflix documentary. This week, Netflix released Night Stalker, a documentary about Richard Ramirez, who is a serial killer and rapist active in the 1980s. For listeners who are sensitive to crimes of this nature, don't worry. I won't be going over Ramirez's crimes in detail because on this show, we're just going to go over a brief timeline of his childhood, his crimes, and the problem people have with the four-episode documentary that was just released. So when he was born, he was originally named Ricardo Leiva Munoz Ramirez, and he was the youngest of five children in El Paso, Texas. At two years old, a dresser fell on him and knocked him unconscious. Then at five, he was hit by a swing that also knocked him unconscious. These two things are part of a greater conversation in the true crime community just in general and the criminal justice community in general about head injuries and serial killers. So that is definitely a conversation that we can have on a future episode if the panel or any of our listeners would be interested. Regardless, at six, he began to have seizures, um, likely as a result of these two injuries, and was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. By the ripe old age of nine, he had begun self-isolating from his peers at school who would often make fun of him and was sleeping in a cemetery nearby his home at the age of 10 to escape his abusive father. Around the same time when he was about 10 or 12 years old, his older cousin Michael had recently returned from the Vietnam War and he began to hang around with Miguel a lot. His cousin goes by a lot of names, depending on what source you use, but the most common one is Mike, so that's what I'm going to call him for the next bit here. To say Mike was a bad influence would be an understatement. Not only did he show Ramirez for stealth and murder, but he also showed him graphic photos of horrible acts he committed uh, during his time in the war. Around the same time, Mike shot his wife right in the face in front of Ramirez. Ramirez subsequently began picking locks, prying open windows, and hunting small animals. As he went through his teenage years, his crimes escalated to stealing and entering homes through their windows. As an adult, he continued to fine-tune his burglarizing tactics, just as commonly seen in several cases to do with serial killers, Ramirez's crimes only continued to evolve, and this usually will manifest in an escalation in brutality as it did with Ramirez. When it came to the brutal at least 11 rapes and at least 13 murders that he committed, Ramirez was active between the summer of 1984 and 1985. On August 31st, 1985, a group of men beat the stuffing out of Ramirez in the street. After a woman at a liquor store recognized him, uh, she saw him and recognized his face from composite sketches that had been everywhere in the media. And she pointed at him and yelled, El Maton, which is basically the killer. So once he was arrested and brought to court, his time there, as many sources have described it, 
is pretty aptly encapsulated in the term trial by circus. We don't have time to go over all of the details here, but just know he took satanic panic, threw reins around it, and took it for a ride. This, along with crime scene photos featured in the recent Netflix release, seems to be a sore spot when it comes to criticisms of the Night Stalker. As sometimes happens with serial killers, many women also began sending him love letters in prison. They were inexplicably infatuated with Ramirez. One of them, whose name was Doreen Loy, even married him in 1996 while behind bars. As a freelance journalist, Loy, along with others, was seemingly not put off by the 19 death sentences he was serving. Eventually, she did begin to distance herself from Ramirez in 2010, which was three years before he would die of liver failure while still on death row. I found that one Screen Rant review put the glamorization issue of Ramirez into words pretty well when it comes to the Night Stalker documentary. Quote, of course, there's always a fine line to navigate in serial killer docu-series because it's important to include an appropriate amount of archival footage which allows the audience to better understand the subject. But about the director, Tiller Russell's decisions to show such footage, they write, Quote, Russell doesn't necessarily go over the top with his filmmaking, but it's evident that he wanted to capitalize on played out tropes about serial killers being quote unquote evil. Many viewers said they couldn't get past more than an episode or two because of how graphic the series was as well. The Independent noted that along with disturbing crime scene images, CGI rec recreations of Ramirez's murders, which included slow-mo blood spatter shots, as described by the Independent, were included as well, which many viewers found to be simply put in bad taste. My question for the panel is, what are your thoughts on glamorizing serial killers in media, which is claiming that it's meant to portray them as the monsters they were, and will you watch The Night Stalker? I do not, I will not be watching The Night Stalker. I just, when it comes to like film and also like journalism, I just think like we're at a point where we just like shouldn't give certain people platforms, no matter like how, you know, quote unquote, interesting facts or, you know, like tidbits about their lives, like ultimately like or if we just keep giving platforms to in media, like if we keep making movies or writing articles about like really bad people continuously without any purpose of reflecting on like what that person did and how we can stop those things from happening in the future, we're kind of just like giving them airtime and kind of making them look cool. Cause like, I feel like most of the true crime documentaries I've seen like, um, they're like talk about how like this person was able to do such and shots without with and getting away and you know they were horrible but you know they were you know prolific in some way and it's I don't know what if we don't really critically look at the things that these people have done or um, you know just and them in general we're just gonna keep making them look like some like truly like just like some film characters like almost like they're not real in a way um so I yeah that's a really astute observation in general of 
us seeing these people as kind of film characters, which is something I've definitely seen a lot in my time kind of watching the true crime community and the way that people discuss these criminals, these serial killers. It's really disheartening in some ways to see the way that not just the killers, but their victims are often kind of fictionalized in a lot of people's minds where it's as if they forget that there are still families out there, there's still friends, people affected by what, in this case, what Ramirez has done. And it is very, very real, you know? At the beginning. And I. Go ahead, Kirsten, finish what you were saying. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, Haley. I was just saying, I think there is a way for us to discuss these crimes and discuss how this happened, why it happened, and like Alejandra mentioned, how we can hopefully prevent it or at least catch it more quickly in the future than kind of giving these people a mythos. As you just reiterated, like this is a serious thing that has affected lots of people. And it's not like when I watch a movie, I'm going to watch a Disney movie to be entertained by like these fictional characters, maybe based off of some fairy tale. But like I'm watching The Lion King, I'm not going into it thinking, oh, this is some true story that definitely happened. And like, yes, this is fact. Um, so me more of a fan of like your Disney movie, watching movies for fiction and entertainment type thing than your fan of watching a factual movie or dramatized factual movie. Um, documentaries are great, but there's times when they're taken to an extreme and directors are looking at them as like, oh, how can I make this entertaining? How can I do this? And I'm like, well, then what's the point of making the documentary? Like the point of a documentary is to tell the truth and like almost, I guess, in a sense, be a reporter to an extent. And I know we talk about journalism a lot and we're like, oh, it does it objectivity. That's confusing. That's weird. But like there's lines. And again, there's a lot of don't cause harm to people. Is romanticizing a serial killer not harming people? Exactly. Like, I, I think there's a problem there. And Netflix seems to have a reoccurring problem with romanticizing things that shouldn't be romanticized. Netflix, please stop. Right. And I think. Oh, no, I seem to have accidentally done it again. Oh, no. This is yeah. only my 100th series oh, no, of doing this. By accident. Oh, boy. Yeah, I think a good. The way that I try to conduct myself in writing the scripts for these episodes and for my the other podcasts that I discuss true crime on crime brulee is I ask myself would I be okay with someone who knew the victim hearing this and I think it sounds like the makers of the Night Stalker may not have asked themselves that question enough Ethan you had something to say <laughs> uh well first I was just making fun <laughs> going off thinking about Netflix for it but um if it's a documentary it does seem a little strange to um if you're making a documentary about a serial killer uh I don't know doesn't seem like it's really necessary to include any depictions of their actual killings maybe besides like photographs of like afterwards but like as you said I, I haven't seen it but like you were saying like in the documentary essentially they were showing some of the murders with um like if you're doing that that seems more like less like a documentary and more like a what is attempting to be a piece of entertainment 
or mm-hmm. more like a a horror than a than a uh, a documentary. Right, and it's pretty commonplace in different kind of true crime media, I guess I'll call it, to show a rough recreation of this is how the person entered the house, this is roughly what it might have looked like for the struggle to have ensued, but it sounds like these are going a step beyond into a little bit more of an entertainment sphere with um, the description of there being CGI slow-mo blood spatter and things like that. I, I think it does kind of cross that line. And in terms of crime scene photos, I will say this is one case that unless they were heavily, heavily censored, I wouldn't agree with them being included just because Ramirez's crimes were incredibly, like brutal feels like a little bit of an understatement. Um, I wouldn't recommend looking them, looking up these crime scene photos if you're not somebody who has a very strong stomach. Uh, I'll put it that way. Yeah. And so I think the the inclusion of them here was unnecessary as well. Yeah, really, yeah, really unnecessary. You really don't have to do that. And Netflix, once again, Netflix, if any Netflix executives are listening to this random podcast for some reason, first of all, welcome. And second of all, please stop being dumb. Like, like, come on, come on. I feel like we have this discussion about a Netflix documentary like every year without fail. Just like like clockwork, it happens. And it's like Unbreakable, Netflix. Unbreakable was good. It was kind of funny. Like, stick to that, please. Yeah, exactly. Don't hurt anyone. And Gideon's right. I mean, the documentary series Don't F with Cats, um, the Ted Bundy movie, the Jeffrey Dahmer movie. This feels like a conversation that we've had so many times in recent years. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm I'm tired. <laughs> exactly. Like just have some ethics here. Just just exactly. just have some ethics. Have some respect for the families that are left behind, the friends, the community. Like, come on. This these were human lives here. And exactly. Exactly. And so that's all of this flavor of doom and gloom that I have for you all today. And I'm going to pass it off to Haley, who has something oh, hopefully a little <laughs> Thank you. Um, no worries, Kristen. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. No, you're good. Um, thank you for sorry. Thank you, everyone. Uh, but hopefully I'll have lighter for us, regardless. I do. Um, so originally, I was going to write about COVID and dark, but honestly, it just like got my anxiety. Like, it just got to me like too much, and I was like, I can't like write about this right now. So I pondered the question: How am I finding comfort these days? Um, and one, I just found that um, many things um, that don't have to do with the outside world are bringing me comfort. One of the things is my on repeat playlist that Spotify has created. And the playlist is about 30 songs of all of the music that I've been listening to lately on a regular basis. And Spotify, it's, it's pretty accurate on the songs that it puts in there. And I mean, a lot of their playlists are pretty accurate, but the on repeat and the repeat rewind, which is like the songs that you listen to a lot, but not listen to them 
in the current moment, maybe like a couple of weeks ago, they eventually fall into that repeat rewind and it's also really good. Um, and those playlists for me are basically just like an endless stream of like Ariana Grande, Megan Thee Stallion, Miley Cyrus. And there's also uh, maybe some Glee cast songs in there, but we don't really need to get into that. Not that I'm necessarily ashamed of having Glee cast songs in there, but because um, some of the so songs are better than the originals, but um, as we know, the series was highly problematic. And also, we all, there's also a lot of streaming services out there, but they're not all equal. But one that's been really good is HBO Max um, because they have a lot of top tier content, in my opinion. They have libraries of Cartoon Network. Um, I know they have the Miyazaki films on their Studio Ghibli. Um, they're on original content and obviously all the HBO stuff. Um, and it's just really good and it's all curated really well. And so it's like, to me, it's like, that's been a lot more comforting than something like Netflix. Cause to me, like Netflix has kind of been on like a decline of quality of content. It's very like few and far between. However, if they do drop another, I know they're going to make it, but once they drop the next season of the redheaded chess woman, um, who's really good at chess, I will be watching that show because that one was really good. Um, and also Zoom classes have also kind of like weirdly brought me some comfort because I don't really see many people these days. So like interacting with my peers on Zoom is like kind of made me feel less alone, even if like the class is boring, like at least seeing them and like hearing them talk has like helped me feel more comforted. And also Zooming like with friends, like y'all like has brought me comfort. Um, quick shout out to the Blaze radio station where I'm meeting yesterday. I could barely keep up with the lightning fast pace of the chat, which I mean, it was, it kept moving. I, I just could not keep up, um, but it was fun. And there's only so much I can do about the outside world. So I've been trying to keep myself sane and comforted through those various channels um, and the cold 67 degree weather of very cold, cold weather of Arizona. Um, it's been somewhat nice too. So I'm wondering how have y'all comforted yourself during the pandemic, whether it be movies or um, being outside or what has it been? Alejandra, I have a very important question for you. Okay. Have you been watching The Bachelor? I have not. I don't really watch The Bachelor, to be honest. Okay. I have a recommendation for you because this has been a big part of my comfort in the last week. I've lost a lot of brain cells to the first week of classes, as you all heard by this point, even just this episode. And this season of The Bachelor has been really, really good. Matt is such a gem of a human being. He said, oh, I'm not perfect. I'm a flawed human being. And he lied. Um, he is <laughs> like, I can't find anything not to like about him genuinely. And so many of the women on the on the season, it's actually fairly diverse this time. And there's this woman on there who I'm so excited to see more of who is from somewhere I'm so sorry it's slipping my mind she's from this place in Africa and she literally looks like if Hera came down from Mount Olympus and paid us a visit and I feel really bad that I can't remember where she's from because I don't want to say the wrong place but she is a goddess on earth and Alejandro you need to watch The Bachelor. I may just have to give it a watch I've seen an episode or two with friends which I wasn't super soaked, stoked about just because it was a little melodramatic 
I prefer a little more drama. That's the uh, appeal. <laughs> um, Love is Blind on Netflix. Ooh. Maybe I will have to give The Bachelor a second try. Please do. And also, I just remembered it's Nigeria. And yeah, it, it makes so much sense that she's beautiful. She said where she was from, and I said, of course. So yeah, definitely give it another try. Has anybody else on the panel been watching The Bachelor? Looks like it's just you. <laughs> yeah, it's just you, Kirsten. But um, I guess I have, this is the like third time I've been recommended this week to watch The Bachelor. So maybe I'll have to change my mind on it now. On who? Go watch. <laughs> I do have a Hulu subscription. Anyways. <laughs> Um, but to get to the conversation that brought us here, the Alejandro, you know, what is giving me comfort in the pandemic has been really trying to hold fast to my friends, like talking to you all, like what we're doing now is like something that brings me joy, fun fact, like uh, this is why we've continued, this is why I've been here for so long. Um, um, what is it? Also... Oh, yeah, like, and also, yeah, with my friends, like, I got to talk with a friend of mine who was studying abroad, and it was really nice getting to talk to him today. Like, things like that really bring me joy, like, being, like, being able to still keep in touch. It's, it, it definitely is not the same over Zoom, I agree, but I can tell you it does make a difference over nothing. And also, okay, Gideon's back. And I uh, got cut off by the uh, internet. Um, yikes. As I was saying, uh, as I was saying previously, so yes, holding on to my friends and also just uh, like small things like cooking. I really do appreciate cooking. I don't have much time to do it anymore because uh, my job um, and school were combined lot there's a lot happening um but mostly it's mostly the schoolwork more so than my job um 18 credits folks uh lots but yeah so my friends and cooking are really keeping me sane we love the friends Gideon and I stay up till two in the morning after last Friday show <laughs> really healthy for our, our sanity yes for sure um on the whole tv thing for some reason i've re got it into the amazing race can't tell you why but the amazing race is a great show <laughs> on hulu has it good enjoy it um chocolate is something that always seems to make me happy but like that's a non-pandemic thing that's just like generally a thing um, my dad has got into walking all of a sudden because he decided one day that walking seemed like a really smart idea. So now I'm going walking with him because I'm at home and that's been nice. That's been mind clearing. And then if we're going down the music route, I guess driver's license by Olivia Rodrigo as far as like us recently listening to music that's been in my house like constantly probably because I have a teenage younger sibling and you know teenagers just listen to the same thing especially if it's like breakup music so yeah I guess that's been helping through the pandemic her the I mean the heartbreak she's feeling at 17 I mean I can't relate I can only imagine like the expression to be able to write it too like I mean I, her, um, I, said, I mean she's skyrocketed and um, I'm sure that those I was gonna say, I'm sure those streams 
are going to be nice in her bank account, but streams actually don't make anybody money. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, I'm like, also, I'm, I'm, it's been funny to see all of, like the, the, the POV TikToks, all the TikToks, and all the like the 28 year old adults like obsessed over like a 17 year old. You are a seatbelt. You are the driver's license. Thanks, TikTok. Oh my gosh. I saw this one of uh, this woman who made her boyfriend break up with her for four minutes so that she could listen to the song after just having been broken up with. And I, what are people? We are what? all just. Okay. <laughs> my best friend just last night. We went and got coffee together because we're both pretty COVID safe people. She doesn't go out really. And I don't either except to go take our, ourselves to Dutch Bros. And she made me drive around her apartment buildings block like twice just so that I could drive while playing the song for her. So she could feel the experience of riding in the car uh, with it on. So I think it's pretty safe to say a lot of people are feeling feeling. <laughs> That's not as bad as make that woman making her boyfriend break up with her. That's just kind of cruel. Um, and Gideon, you asked, what are we? We are flawed is what we are. We are flawed people. Yes, indeed. Um, Ethan, is there anything you've been considering uh, that's brought you comfort? Yes. Um, first, I've done more reading um, for fun. All right. Like, you know me, Gideon knows. You for fun thing, yes. Like, it's underrated, but it's great. I like, I do like what I read. I did like what I read for human event and for my political science classes, but that was a side reading. So still not the same. Um, and uh, I've been, I've gotten some time to spend on video games. So like, I just finished uh, Dark Souls 3. Which uh, I don't I don't know if any of you guys ever tried that, but I, I had never really had the time before to invest in that. It takes a lot more time um, as a game than the other ones that I've been able to. So that's been nice as well. Nice. Every time I try to look up a book, like all of the like NPR and New York Times best book list, and I try to check a book out virtually through Phoenix Public Library, they're all backed up because obviously people want to read them because they're all on those lists. Anyways, um, we're going to hand it over to Haley with sports. Yes, in terms of things that have been keeping me happy, sports is an up and down battle, as it always is. Anyways, in the fall in Arizona, we saw COVID numbers skyrocketing. As of yesterday, the date of this recording, it's January 15th. Yesterday was January 14th. As Gideon mentioned earlier, we have well over 9,000 cases of COVID here in this state. With winter sports around the corner, the Arizona Interscholastic Association, also known as the AIA, had a tough decision to make. Would winter sports be played? On January 8th in Phoenix, the AIA decided in a five to four vote to cancel winter sports due to statewide hospital concerns. That caused protests among many high school athletes and coaches who considered the decision unfair, especially because fall sports had just finished their season. In the days following, many winter sport athletes protested in front of the AIA headquarters saying things like, winter sports and AIA let us play. According to the East Valley Tribune, a North Canyon student started an online petition that received over 3,300,000 signatures in just a couple of hours. 
On January 12th, the board revisited that decision and in a five to four vote, the previous ruling was overturned. Jim Love, who, re who represents the Flowing Wells Unified School District was the deciding vote. He's quoted saying, I wanna give the schools the choice to play or not. This season, however, will look different than past years. Athletes, officials, and coaches will be required to wear cloth masks at all times. The fan sections will also be reduced heavily. Each athlete will only be allowed to have two parents or guardians in attendance, and they will be required to wear cloth masks for the whole of the event as well. And if they don't wear masks, the athletic directors are supposed to like remove them from the court or stadium or whatever the game is being played in. However, David Hines, an AIA executive board director, said that the decision of the fans may be revisited in the future. Schools will also be required to complete an AIA COVID-19 monitoring form before each and every game, and they're going to have to give a copy to the opposition team that they're facing off against. Any school that violates any of those new protocols will have their AIA membership revoked and will have to reapply for a membership for future seasons. A couple of school districts, including the Taliesin Union School District and the Apache, yes, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but you can look it up, that school district, they've opted out of this year's season because of the risk of COVID. For schools that are competing this season, the competition will start back up on the week of January 18th. Overall, I understand the need for sports and them wanting their season back, but I'm curious what you guys think about this decision. I don't like it because I know kids want to play and I get it. Um, they are, like that's they're a lot for a lot of them, like that's their passion and they want to play. And I know coaches want to play too, but I wish, I kind of wish more coaches stood up um, kind of in a fashion like Kara Lawson, who's the um, head coach of Duke's women basketball team. And um, they played some games, but then after a certain time, she said that they're not playing any more games and she canceled their season because it just wasn't safe for her and her players to be playing because the risk of catching COVID-19 um, it's just, I mean, it's too great. Um, and I, yeah, I just wish more coaches would stand up for their players as, you know, the players might, you know, go back and forth and they might say they might not like decisions that their coaches may make. Ultimately, I think it's in the best interest of the kids. Cause again, this is AIA, this is high school. So, you know, these are kids and they're not getting paid. Um, and I really don't want the risk of them catching COVID-19 cause if, we, if the NBA can't keep their players safe when they have a lot more extensive protocols, then, you know, kids in high schools in Arizona are definitely not going to be able to be safe. Unfortunately, I think the biggest issue was there was that many athletes were leaving the schools they were at to go play for schools that were like private schools or were playing for like club teams and were then like literally just not going to school so they could focus on their athletics. And I think that's a big reason why the AIA decided to resume the athletic season because they were scared of losing all their potential athletes who could like go to colleges and, you know, make money for the AIA and all that sort of stuff. Any other thoughts? Yeah, it's not... This seems to be a poorly thought out decision and given we've talked about the uh, high school sports and how many times they were interrupted by COVID outbreaks last season during the fall. Yeah, I I'm just, I'm deeply skeptical of it. On one hand, yeah, completely understand people want to play. I think they should if it's possible, but right now I just think it's a 
bit reckless. Right. I mean, even in the springtime, it's the spring semester now again, and seniors are a thing on a lot of people's minds. Seniors are probably really wanting to play. And like Gideon said, I guess you can't really blame them for that. But I mean, I guess, is there any better way to do this is the question. Uh, I mean, there's full canceling. We've seen that in a lot of other states. We'll see how the mask mandate thing works. I, I'd attended games because of journalism reasons and there was full fans. We'll see if they can really reduce the number of fans. We'll see if everyone's really wearing their masks. Are masks gonna solve the full problem? No, but could they help? Yeah, possibly. And if everyone's wearing them, things might go better. So hopefully the AIA takes their job like fully responsible and like actually invokes what they're supposed to be invoking. We'll see how that goes. Anyways, this has been the review today. Uh, happy to be back on Blaze Radio at 7 p.m. Arizona time. Um, you can follow us on our social medias. We would appreciate that. Review underscore squared. I think that's our socials. It is great. I know them definitely for sure. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it very much. And I hope you all have a great week, day, month, whatever. Yeah, that's been the review. The song at the start of the episode is Dedicated to the Press by Betty Davis, and the music you hear is by Springtime.